Welcome to the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We are your hosts, Michael and Lauren Falk. We are physical therapists, athletic trainers, and strength and conditioning coaches at Kinetic Sports Medicine and Performance. We will be talking all things related to athletic performance for Milwaukee area athletes. Sports medicine, performance training, sports nutrition, recovery, and sports coaching. There's a lot of misinformation and myths surrounding athletic performance and injuries. This podcast is designed to bring current, factual, and evidence-based information to Milwaukee area athletes. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jiren Apari. Jiren is a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Performance in Motion in Chicago, Illinois. Jaron graduated from Marquette University with a bachelor's in athletic training and his doctorate of physical therapy. Jaron's passion for sports medicine led him to internships with the Milwaukee Bucks, Milwaukee Brewers, and Exos, which is a high-performance training and rehabilitation center. Jaron has been with Performance in Motion for several years and works with clients ranging from professional athletes to active adults on a range of things from rehabilitation from painful conditions to enhancing performance, fitness, or wellness. Lauren and I have known Jaron for many years, dating back to his time as a student at Marquette initially, and then we were actually classmates going through the physical therapy program together. So welcome to the show, Jaron, and thank you for coming on. Man, thanks for, thanks for having me. Such a, such a pleasure, such an honor, and uh, big shout out to you and Lauren for landing me the, uh, the gig with Performance in Motion in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, um, most, so. Mostly Lauren. <laughs> mostly Lauren, yeah. Crazy story how that all unfolded, but very thankful for, for her and for you guys. Uh, yeah, no, um, absolutely. Well, so that kind of leads us into the question. So how, uh, what, what got you into kind of athletic training and physical therapy? And then, you know, tell us a little bit more about um, performance in motion, what you guys are doing down there. Yeah. Um, so initially, um, it was kind of the classic, you know, as an athlete, you played sports and high school and then you get hurt and you get exposed to uh, your school's athletic trainer and you get hurt bad enough, then you go see a physical therapist. Um, but uh, even like a, a big influence comes from my family and uh, um, as a lot of them are healthcare workers, like nurses and dentists and stuff. But um, those fields didn't really interest me. Um, my, my love was for sports, uh, the training aspect, the competition aspect, um, and, and overall just like staying active. So I wanted to be able to kind of combine, um, those two things, healthcare and, and what I was passionate about. So, um, found that in athletic training, um, and in physical therapy. And, uh, now I'm at performance in motion in Chicago, um, uh, who were kind of led, uh, by Robbie Ohashi and, uh, we're, we're private, um, private-based uh, physical therapy practice here in Chicago, kind of similar to you guys. Um, and a lot of what we're doing is we're uh, seeing a lot of athletes of all different kinds of high school, collegiate, some professional, um, but also seeing the athlete and everyone and kind of treating everyone um, as an athlete um, in terms of uh, the quality of care and, and also um, kind of looking at it from a holistic perspective and and trying to give everybody, you know, um, uh, that motivation and, and everybody has those goals like athletes do and, and just giving them the best care that we can. Yeah. 
No, I think that's uh, that's awesome. We've been down there and spent some time with you guys and got a great setup and and uh, really really good good staff. So I'm excited to talk shop and dive into it a little a uh, little bit more today. So what uh, you've kind of had a pretty interesting career experience so far, just with some of your internships. Um, what were you able to take away from working with two different professional sports team um, organizations and, and kind of how has that affected what you're doing now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's man, pro sports. It's a lot of hard work. Uh, it's a lot of hours, as you know, Mike, um, uh, from your experiences too. And, and uh, it's not everything that it, it uh, looks like from the surface, but it's a lot of fun at the same time too. Um, so really what I got from those experiences is that um, to get there, you have to be good at what you do, no doubt. I mean, those guys are, you know, um, great clinicians and, and, they, and they're really passionate about what they do. Um, you have to be willing to put in the long hours, the long days, the long seasons. Um, and, uh, and really what I also took away from it is that those athletes are a different population. Um, in terms of their athletic ability, um, in terms of their their personalities, and, and even the other things that you have to deal with in terms of like agents, coaches, um, those other factors. Um, but again, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's great to be you know part of a team where everybody's kind of um, all working towards one common goal, and that's just to win. You know whatever it is you're looking to win. Yeah. I think you made a couple of interesting points and uh, I mean, I think people don't understand everything that goes on behind the scenes there and, uh, and that it is a job and there's, uh, it's a job for both parties. It's a job for the player. It's a, it's a job for you as a medical provider. Um, You know, there's, there's organizations that do it great in the right way. And there's organizations that don't, and there's, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of politics and other stuff um that that i think sometimes the average person doesn't doesn't totally appreciate or or understand i think one of the things that i've noticed is it gives you a different perspective when you're on on the other side of it like um you know we've got some of the pro baseball guys in town now and uh, you know with the we're i'm gonna date the episode but we're recording it during the during the covid uh, shutdown and so um you know they're here and you know, I'm talking to, we're doing the stuff with them from distance, but while they're actually in town and, uh, you're talking to the organization and you kind of have an appreciation for, they're going to be responsible for what happens to these guys once they go back and they're going to be held accountable in their organization, but they're having to trust people like you and I around the country who, you know, some of us in are, there's some really good. There's some maybe not so good. There's a lot of stuff. And, you have that like different perspective when you're just communicating with the staff. And I think that's been really helpful for, for me. Totally. Totally. And, and you're so right. I think um, once you have that experience of kind of uh, seeing what it's like on, on that end as being like a direct um, part of the team, part of the personnel, you, you can kind of empathize with, with those guys and, and see kind of what they're going through as well. And, and I think that helps in, in terms of uh, guys like us kind of taking care of the athletes in this, in this term. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So, all right, let's uh, dive into specifics a little bit. Um, 
know you and I both really love talking about performance, movement, um, agility, things like that. I know you've got a particularly strong interest in, in basketball and you still play yourself. Um, so probably more than any other sport, basketball really requires a lot of lateral movement. Um, so what are some common errors or limitations that you see with basketball players and their lateral movement abilities? Yeah. Um, I think the most common one that I see is that, um, basketball players, when we break down, um, their movement, um, they have a hard time really pushing into the ground and, or, or even using the ground to their advantage. Um, even just like looking at, a uh, someone playing defense, the defensive slide, for example. Um, I see a lot of guys like trying to beat the offensive player to um, the spot by almost like lunging out and reaching. And then uh, by that position, they would have to almost pull themselves into, into position. And uh, it takes a lot of time to uh, teach these guys how to push into the ground and really feel what it's like um, to do that. Um, and you see that not only in how they perform on the court, but when you really break it down into their isolated and, and fundamental movements, it, it shows there too. Yeah. No, I think uh, that's something that we've seen. I think it's, it's something that, um, that they, there's sometimes just a lack of understanding about like the, what's like most efficient, you know, to get from point mm -hmm. A to point B. It's um, sometimes I think it's just been bad habits that have been developed or um, things like that. And uh, you know, we see some that it's uh, almost like a deliberate choice because they just want to get beat and then try to go for the steal from, you know, wrap around from behind. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, right. But uh, uh, no, I know we see the we see the same type of stuff. So what kind of a, let's say you see that with a guy that's really kind of reaching with the front leg versus versus driving off the back leg. What do you, what's, what's an approach that you take to working on that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that uh, I always try to do, and, and this is something that I, I learned from Robbie and, and being a performance in motion is, is breaking down their movement. Um, so taking their task of, okay, I want to get better at defense. I want to be quicker um, and stay in front of my man on defense. That's their sport specific task. Okay, how do we break that down into an integrated movement? break that down even further into a fundamental movement and then break that down even further into something that is isolated movement. Right. And, uh, for that athlete, we take them through that, we call it like the movement spectrum, walk them through that thing back and forth and show them, you know, this is why we're working on your clamshell exercise laying on your side. You know, that's why this exercise is really important and it translates over into when you're playing defense. Um, and I think making those connections for um, the athlete is is powerful, and, and especially when they can understand it and, and walk through it themselves. Um, that's something that they can take on, not only in the time that we're working with them, but also when they go back to their teams um, or in their next off season if they're, you know, not in town for that off season or if they get traded to a different team or something. Yeah, it's something that they'll always have. Yeah, I think uh, that's something that kind of in a variety of sports that we've found is, is just being able to give the athlete like context to, okay, you know, what may look like this silly, you know, lunge drill or whatever the case may be, um, rather than just going through the motions, if you can kind of impart on them why you selected this and why it carries over to the sport, um, there's been, you know, instantly better buy-in, the intent on the exercise goes way up and then they end up getting a lot more out of it. 
um, you know, just by kind of explaining it to them. Totally. Yeah. And I think a lot of athletes learn by doing too. So if you can show them in a drill or an exercise, you know, how to do it, quote unquote, more efficiently, more optimally, whatever. And then you have them try to do it in the way that they were, you know, demonstrating um, when they were uh, going through their sports specific stuff and they feel the difference in how it's not as explosive or, or they're not as quick or it hurts here when they do it that way. It really creates that, that buy-in even more. Yeah. Well, that's where we'll, uh, we'll usually, you know, kind of go through a similar process of if we see something, we'll initially break it down, but then we usually try to finish that, that day or that session with putting it back together into the, into the whole movement. And then we'll try to take it outside of just like a drill and make it some type of a competition where you're adding like that reactive component of they're actually having to incorporate that based off of, you know, reading the environment and doing something. Um, And sometimes we'll see, you know, the thing that we were working on reemerge, but it's a great point of like, okay, well, I just beat you. I'm slow mm-hmm. and unathletic, you know, <laughs> so um, that's a problem. Why, you know, what do you do that? Why, why did I win? And it, it lets them now like try to put it all back together again. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think that's powerful and, and, uh, and making those connections for those guys again, um, it, uh, it creates buy-in it creates trust and, uh, it creates results for a lot of them. Um, I think, and even when it comes to lateral movement in, in basketball specifically, um, or even like in tennis, a lot of times that we see, um, uh, I think there's like a, there's some sort of uh, social stigma around like the crossover step being like a bad step or like, you know, in basketball, I think a lot of the old school way is like coaches say like, don't use the crossover step. You got to shuffle your feet or, or slide. Um, uh, I'd like to hear what your thoughts on that are, Mike. And, and, uh, cause, cause I, I personally like the crossover step for people and we teach it to, to people all yeah. the time. So I think, uh, we, we try to give them context. And so like we, the way we teach it to them is like, okay, if, if I were to throw a ball and say, go get it, right. You'd never laterally slide to go get it. It's not the fastest way to move but it does give you the most options. So with your feet square like that, you can move to either side, you can move forward, you can move backwards. It's pretty easy to flip your hips and turn and run. You could jump, you've got a wide base if you have contact, like you've got all these movement options. Once you commit to a crossover step, you're gonna cover way more distance, but you're gonna, you're gonna slow down or reduce your variability out of that. Um, but it's still in between like, full commit to turn and run and, and the lateral slide. So that's kind of how we, we teach it. And that's essentially what we do is like, okay, you get beat and now you need to cover, you guess wrong. Now you need to cover ground the other direction. It's a, you know, I you, usually will have people will see them be able to cover in one crossover step, like the same amount of ground that they'll cover in like three or four lateral slides um, or lateral mm-hmm. shuffles. And so it's like a great, um, like mistake recovery tool or, or things like that. So that's kind of how we use it. Um, the, the other controversy with the crossover step is, is like how it's being coached and this probably gets more, uh, detailed than the, uh, uh, than we can demonstrate in a podcast, but we Mm -hmm. see it much more within like a game environment of, um, they're actually opening that front foot up and almost like 
putting themselves in an in a acceleration position and then crossing over with their outside leg um, versus like keeping the feet totally square and pushing um, way off. Like, um, you know, like I used to teach people that way and then kind of watching people move like base runners are a great example. You actually really see them like open the lead leg and they almost, they try mm -hmm. to hit like an acceleration angle on that front foot and then it, and then they cross over that, that other leg. Mm -hmm. So what about you? What do you, you said you like the crossover step. How do you introduce it or teach it to people? Yeah. Um, we, we teach it a lot and I think it's very important, uh, almost like a, like a footwork kind of drill to, to teach people kind of like you, you were talking about and, and trying to describe, um, yeah, it's really hard to kind of describe what you'd want to see in a podcast, but, uh, um, we use it a ton and, and almost for uh, really like the same reason you talked about almost like as a recovery tool, like you guess wrong. All right. You got to make up the ground for it. Yeah. How do you do it? Or, or like in, in basketball, your, your man beats you off the dribble. Okay. How do you get that, um, extra step to catch up with him? Um, yeah. but, uh, a lot of the same ways we like to use it for, for that reason. Cause it comes up all the time in sport. There's so much variability in sport and, and the athlete has to intake so much information and, and process it all there's no way that they're going to be perfect and and have the ability to just slide all the time right yeah. and if you never teach them the crossover step and they make a mistake in the game or they guess wrong and they have to move fast and they want to move fast and you don't teach them how to do it i think that's when they get in trouble yeah no exactly well even sometimes with with the lateral shuffle stuff we'll like will put people in a position like, okay, you went for a steal, you ended up, you know, out of balance with your weight on your front leg, kind of you reached, you know, now we're going to do the agility drill out of that position. Like we'll call it like a mistake recovery, you know, aspect where we'll set them up like they made, made the mistake and then try to work on, okay, now I'm, I'm going to drive right past you. How are you going to get, get back and, and do mm -hmm. stuff like that? So mm -hmm. no, that's uh that's interesting. It's uh that's really good. So I think the other thing that we see a lot um, with really any athlete, but I think it's really notable with basketball players returning from injuries is, is issues with decelerating and, and absorbing kind of force absorption type stuff. No one wants to talk about it because it's not kind of as, as, uh, as fun as talking about the increasing vertical jumps or things like that. But we think it's really important because most injuries happen when people are slowing down. Um, do you guys see a lot of issues with kind of deceleration force absorption type stuff? What do you, uh, what do you guys like to do to work on that or, or things like that? Yeah, I definitely see, um, that coming up a lot. I think if you look at a lot of, um, mechanisms of injury for, um, majority of, of, uh, injuries in sport, non-contact injuries in sport too, it's always with cutting and, uh, decelerating is like, you need that you need to have that skill and that strength um for cutting so um definitely see a lot of that um i think a lot of it comes from uh strength based um in terms of uh you know uh, guys just like don't train that way or or if they're coming off of an injury and, and they're coming back they're not strong enough yet to do some of that stuff so maybe they're being pushed back too early and physiologically uh, muscles are just weaker. There's not as many fibers or fibers aren't as big or whatever. But I think there's also a point in uh, um, rehab where it can be mental, where maybe the athlete is ready. They've taken 
the appropriate amount of time, did the appropriate strength training or whatever. Um, and then uh, they're scared to load that leg because of, you know, fear of pain or re-injury or whatever else. Um, and I think that's important with uh, to teach deceleration with, with these athletes um, in, in their rehab because, you know, athletes are the best compensators. You tell them to do something, they'll find a way. Yeah. Um, and I think deceleration is one that's often um, overlooked. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's perfect. It's kind of the same approach we take as we sort of, it's like, if you have a strength deficit, it's strength based until you prove to us that it's not, <laughs> you know, we kind of like, you know, hit the low hanging fruit first. And then we do mm-hmm. the kind of similar thing of uh, whether it's working on confidence, whether it's just incorporating, you know, I think they kind of go together, like um, working on rate of force development along kind of helps build their confidence so finding drills or tasks that gradually increase the demands of that kind of eccentric force absorption phase and how fast they can do it and just Mm -hmm. like kind of gradually getting more stressful more hard you know more difficult more challenging and i think it you know it's like chicken and the egg like either they start to improve with their rate of force development abilities or they get more confident or they get more confident because they they improve with their you know right exactly but that's the same approach we take yeah that's great that you guys have the the force plates and stuff and and can get that data um and those numbers to to really objectify that yeah Uh, we're not as fancy as you guys and we don't have those force plates um but uh, I think it really shows, and, and we find it a lot in their movement pattern. Yeah. Um, if a guy, even if um, they're not necessarily coming to us for an injury, it may be um, an athlete in their off season and they tell us um, their injury history and they tell us, um, you know, what's been bothering them with this movement and that movement. We can, we can find that they're maybe afraid to load their one leg versus the other. Um, and just how they move, um, which is, which is super interesting. And then, and then you teach them how to do it the right way. And initially they can even hold that position for like 10 seconds because their leg is on fire and, and these muscles are, are firing in ways that they haven't before. Um, and then they work with us for a while and we train that way. And then, you know, they come back and their pain goes away or, or they feel more explosive or their times are better or whatever else. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, that's awesome. Really good stuff. So now, what everyone's more interested in? Uh, no one, no one wants to talk about injuries and things like that, other than the people that are injured. So you know, every basketball player that walks into our office, and I'm sure you guys see the same thing, um, wants to work on the hops, try to dunk. Yeah. Um, you know, improve the vertical jump. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, what uh, what do you guys see as some key components to uh, like a vertical jump program or or uh, in improving somebody's vertical jump? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the biggest thing is uh, training specifically for it. You know, if somebody comes into our um, in our space and they and they say, okay, I want to dunk by this time or whatever, get closer, and we got to train it right. We got to teach them how to jump, um, and I think. Um, a lot of times people confuse strength with power and basketball players specifically, they are, you know, really powerful athletes. Uh, They may not be the strongest. I mean, you see guys that are super lanky and super tall and super skinny, but you know, they're jumping out of the gym 
because they know how to recruit those. They have, first of all, a lot of fast switch fibers, but they also know how to use them in terms of like getting a lot of speed, um, using the ground, creating a lot of force quickly. So um, just trying to train guys um, in that way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the, the other thing that we see with some of the basketball guys is like they want to improve their vertical or they want to try to dunk. Like they want to go to the court and they want to try to dunk for two hours straight. And, <laughs> um, and we try to really explain to them like that if we're working on power and your power development, that it's super fatigue sensitive, like way, way more fatigue sensitive than even working on your strength. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have to jump, rest, jump again, rest, and, and yeah. really go for that maximal effort each time. And um, one of the games that we'll play with people if we're working on power is like, could be whatever it is that you have, a vertex, a jump mat, a, a force play, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But like, if we're going to work on improving your jump, like, okay, we're going to jump, that's going to, whatever that is, that's, that's the bare minimum. We're going to rest, you're going to jump again whenever you don't at least hit that mark, whenever it starts to decrease or you don't set a new high, like, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to rest for three to five minutes. We're going to go do something else. We'll come back. We'll try again. If you don't hit that same, same mark, you know, then we'll, we'll stop again. We give them mm-hmm. three misses where they don't kind of peak or exceed their previous best. And then we're done for the day. And like, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that was your power. You know, that was working on your power. Now you're fatigued. We're going to go, you know, we'll go lift, we'll go do other stuff. We'll go skill development stuff. But, you know, if we're going to really work on max effort jumping, then it needs to be max effort and you have to be well rested for that. Right. I think that brings up a great point, not only in, in uh, vertical jump training, but in, in training in general. Um, I don't think every workout has to be a hundred percent like max effort every time. And, and a workout isn't measured by how, you know, sweat stained your shirt is, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, uh, it, it should be measured by, and, and more so your results than anything, but, you know, not every workout is meant to completely drain and exhaust your body. And I think that's something that a lot of athletes, you know, they see the NBA guys in the off seasons, like working up a sweat, um, in the gyms and stuff and doing all these drills. So they think, okay, I got to, I got to do that. I got to really um, be sweaty and, and exhausted and burnt out after every workout. And, and that's not really the case. Like you said, it's something like max power training. You, you need a lot of rest in between yeah. to really work on that. Yeah, no, exactly. Any, anybody can make someone tired. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, oh, it's yeah. harder to make somebody actually better. So, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. Um, so what about, uh, what about some injuries that you see in basketball? players what are what are some things that you end up treating quite a bit with uh with these athletes a lot of ankle sprains a lot of patellar tendonitis um achilles um hamstring strains that's majority of what we see um i'm seeing uh uh one athlete now who unfortunately tore his acl um this past season but majority of this stuff is really ankle sprains. A lot of stuff that you see with commonly with basketball players. Yeah. What do you guys, um, you know, ankle sprains have a tendency to kind of recur again and again and again. Um, do you guys see, 
see anything that's like really key about that rehab or kind of a different approach that you've taken or, or anything like that to try to reduce the likelihood of the second injury? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest thing is, and Lauren will like this answer, is working on hip strength and, and <laughs> glutes and uh, and all that good stuff. I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, the ankle is, is so far from your core and, and your hips and things, but uh, the the weaknesses can, can find themselves a lot more proximally um, at your hip. And, uh, and that's something that we see a lot, not just in uh, – um, our basketball athletes, but even our runners and, and tennis people, like if they're having a lot of issues, you know, distally at the ankle, a lot of times we'll, we'll find the, um, the big takeaway points and the big issues are at their hip or elsewhere. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. So it kind of goes right into the, and then the next ones, is there, I personally kind of hate the word injury prevention. I, I use it some, but I, I wish I could just say injury risk reduction, but, uh, no one, no one knows what I'm talking about. If I, if I say that, uh, <laughs> so what are, uh, what are some, some key things that players could be doing? Um, kind of we're going hopefully into AAU season here in a couple months over the summer. Um, what are some key things that people could do over the summer to try to keep themselves healthy and, and stay out of your, in my office? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, especially with the youth athletes now and looking at their youth schedule. Um, uh, they're playing sports all year round uh, nowadays. Even if the, the athlete is just a basketball athlete, uh, they're playing from their school season straight into, you know, a spring AAU season, which then will probably lead to like showcases or something or some sort of other travel team like throughout the summer. Um, and then like it ends up being, you don't even end up taking any time off. Um, and if that has to be your schedule, you know, if that's the way it is, I think things that you can be doing on a daily basis or, um, things like, uh, resting well in terms of like sleep, um, getting the right food in eating healthy, um, which is really, really difficult <laughs> to get youth athletes to buy into and, and actually do. Um, but I really think that's something where you know, if you look at the studies that talk about how important sleep is and, and how important nutrition is and, and recovery is, um, that's where a lot of athletes can get the edge up on, on their peers in, in one off season. Even if they just work on that in one off season, it'll make a huge difference for them. It'll let them train harder. Um, it'll let, make them feel better just, you know, all day long. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, a couple of interesting points. I think you're like the third or fourth guest in a row now that's been talking about the year round sports thing. <laughs> so it's <laughs> it's going to be a recurring, it's recurring theme that it's okay to, it's okay to actually have a couple month break at some point, have a, have an off season uh, mm-hmm. that, that keeps coming up. But no, I mean, we do the same thing. It's like, if you're not sleeping right, eating right, you know, nothing else that we do matters at that point. Right. Like, Right. If it, uh, everyone wants to talk about, you know, stuff that like Michael Phelps did and things like that in the Olympics, it's like, Hey, that's awesome. But he had a nutritionist that had a custom diet that was custom making his shakes. He had a custom sleep plan with all this stuff. He had like all this other stuff and he's at the Olympic level where, you know, 0.01 seconds makes a difference between gold medal, silver medal, right? Mm-hmm. Like as a 13, 14, 15 year old, you know, if you're sleeping five hours a night, six hours a night, and just eating Cheetos on the couch all day, 
um, we got way bigger <laughs> like fish to fry than, than before we get into all these high tech recovery methods and things like that. So definitely. Yeah. I think yeah. if you're, if you're one of those 15, 16 year old kids and, and you maybe even feel like you're hitting a plateau with your training and, and you look in the mirror and you find yourself sleeping five, six hours a night or, or, you know, eating the Cheetos for breakfast or whatever. And you just like, don't change what you're doing except for your sleep and, and your nutrition. And I, I think they'll find, you know, improvements and in, in gains that they were having trouble making before. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Really, uh, really good advice. Um, okay. Some of the last, last couple of questions here. So I'm sure you see it a lot too, but you know, we work with a lot of high school athletes. You guys do as well. Um, we get a lot of patients kind of similar to you and me that end up wanting to go into the medical field, either physical therapy or med school, things like that, following their injury experience. Um, could you kind of tell them what the process of becoming a PT was like? Um, and any recommendations for any of the athletes or, or students that might be interested in, in becoming a physical therapist? Yeah, um, man, uh, PT is great. It's, a, it's such a rewarding field, um, but it's a lot of hard work to, to get into and get through. Um, PT school is hard. Not only is the content like difficult, but you know, with all the practicals and stuff, it can be super nerve wracking and and, and PT in itself is so vast, you, you'll start to cover things in school that, you know, you may know that you don't ever want to do, um, but you kind of got to get through it um, in PT school. So just be prepared for that. Uh, be prepared to work hard um, and be prepared to, to really um, constantly learn. Because even now that um, I've been out of school for uh, a little bit now, three years, I think now, and yeah. uh, um, I'm still learning. I mean, every day, um, always trying to learn more, always trying to figure out, you know, um, how can I treat this person better or, or do better when I see this next? And, and uh, um, but yeah, it, it's a great field to get into. Yeah, no, that's uh, awesome. Really good advice. All right. Now the, uh, the, we always end with a fun kind of lightning round to let people, uh, uh, you know, get to know you a little bit better. Did some oh, some scouting today with your buddy uh, Greg Signorelli. So. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> this will so, be fun. Yeah. Um, so you've been known to have quite the shoe collection. So what's the uh, what's the favorite shoe to hoop in? Favorite shoe to hoop in ever, definitely the the Kobe Eight. Okay. Good. Um, what about uh, what's your favorite shoe that you've ever owned? Ooh, that's a good question. Favorite shoe I've ever owned. Um, probably one of my, um, uh, more recent pickups now to, to retro Jordan. It's a, a Jordan four white cement colorway. Those are probably my favorite shoes to wear okay. of all time. There we go. Um, what about, do you have a bucket list shoe? Like something that you one day hope to be able to own or, or get? Um, no, not really. Not at this point um man shoes are really expensive i should probably stop buying them but <laughs> but uh so far no no huge bucket list shoe okay now i'm uh i'm not a big sneaker head but uh I, I had a patient this year that um like runs a side business where he he follows all the releases like the release dates he'll go and 
like get him early and then he'll turn around and flip him on the playground at school for a profit. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is, this is awesome. I had no idea that this was a thing, but uh, really, yeah. really cool. Very, I'm like, one day maybe I'll hire you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a real thing. It's, um, I have some friends that are more into shoes than I am and, and they pay like, um, these, these monthly subscriptions or something to kind of get the head scoop and, and, uh, almost like an inside man that yeah. tells them, okay, these are dropping at this time on this day. So they'll beat everybody to their computer or whatever. And yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. People are kind of, you know, open up shops this way. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, it's awesome. So, okay. I've been, I've been seeing on the social media, um, that you've been posting a lot of, uh, local Chicago food pictures. Um, so what's your, what's your favorite local, local spot to eat right now? Favorite local spot. Well, they unfortunately um, closed their doors because of all the stuff going on um, with the COVID-19 stuff. But my favorite place is a place called Del Sol in Lincoln Park in Chicago. It's on Clark Street. Um, great, great Korean food. Okay. All right. We'll have to uh, check it out hopefully next time we're, uh, we're down in Chicago. So Yeah, definitely. All right, man. Well, this was uh, really fun. I appreciate your time today. Uh, great conversation. I hope a lot of the athletes can take a lot of stuff away from, from this interview and take some really practical information home with them. Um, so where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're doing? Um, uh, I think the best way would probably be to, to look at our um, team website at Performance in Motion. Um, which is just uh, teampim.com. And then looking at our um, social media, um, we're on Twitter, um, we're on Instagram, and just kind of find us that way. Um, and then really for me personally, the only social media that I really use now is Instagram. So just kind of looking up my first and last name and you'll find me, I'm sure. I don't know many yeah. other gyrons out there. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get the, the uh, handles and everything in the, in the show notes today. So, all right. Well, awesome, man. I, again, I really appreciate it. And thank you to everyone that listened. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new that will help you achieve your goals. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram and search MKE Sports Podcast. Like, follow, or comment on today's episode. If you have questions, comments, topics, or guest suggestions, reach out through that Instagram account. Your feedback will help us make this podcast as relevant and informative as possible. If you have additional time, we'd appreciate your help in spreading this information. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, it will help us spread the word to more athletes in the greater Milwaukee area. Have a great day, and we will see you next time.